And so um, I want to go to the Lord right in prayer and we're going to just start digging into Judges, starting in Judges 10 tonight. So pray with me if you would, please. Lord, I, I do want to slow down and listen to you and do so much more than just ramp up for the next thing. Lord, I just kind of feel like sometimes life is on a conveyor belt and everything just kind of keeps coming and so we just deal with whatever in front of us and wait for the next thing to come and it seems like there's really not really any space in between. And then we have nights like this where where really we could kind of easily just kind of get distracted and waste our night. And we could kind of be one of those people walking in the crowd while a woman's lunging out for your the hem of your garment and we wouldn't stop you at all because really we're kind of not doing anything but just kind of being around it. But tonight I don't want to be around it. I want to be with you. I want to reach out to you, God, in faith and just say, God, I need you. I need you so bad. I always have. I always will. But I'm just keenly aware of it. Not even for some great fault before me or great failure, but just because it just seems like we can get in a rut of not really worshiping you. We say the right words, God, but I know that you've seen that and you've gotten to the point in the Old Testament where you say, I hate your songs. I I hate your sacrifices uh, because they're like all the right things for no reason. They just There's no heart in it. And God, I don't want that to be the case. So tonight, Lord, I pray that you would as we draw points from the story of Yipsa, Lord, please let us let us get what we need to get. Let us be ready, Lord, to receive from you what you need to teach us and what you need to show us. So this will be so much more than just another night where we got information. So Lord, do transform us tonight. And do the work in our hearts you really want to do, which I'm sure is so much more than just Distract us from things of life. But equip us for those things, I pray. To handle them in your way. To represent you as you call us to, in Jesus' name. Amen. Captivate us in your word now. Draw us in. Take possession of our attention. Take possession of our minds to transform them by the renewing of your word. Take position of our hearts. Let our feelings not rule any part of us. But only, Lord, turn the ignition. But you, you are the one who's to drive. So please have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Please don't just assume what I'm saying is right. Search the scriptures. Let the word really do what it's supposed to do tonight. There are 13 judges in the book of Judges. That's not assuming Barak is one. He's just kind of a guy that's a military leader, not even by volunteer initially. Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Abimelech have been the ones we've gone through. So really, if you look at it, we've kind of gone through half of them. Now there will be, in our remaining text, uh, the remaining book of Judges, there will be two major characters and we'll kind of, in essence, hop through two real quickly and then get to Jephthah. 
and then hop through three and get to Samson. And that's really kind of what we have for the rest of the book. But that doesn't mean that they don't have importance. And God doesn't, I mean, he never gives us extra words. It isn't like he was like Dickens where he got paid by the word. God makes everything important. And this is how we start it. It says in Judges 10.1, after Abimelech, and remember that was the son of uh, Gideon, kind of half-son, if you will, who then had his rest of his brothers assassinated. That'll be kind of, that idea will kind of play out even in, in our text today. Uh, and uh, he um, declared himself king, hired a bunch of worthless guys, and in hiring a bunch of worthless guys, he basically claimed a throne that wasn't his. But after that guy, Judges 10.1, Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dudu. And I kid you not, that's what it says. That's scripture. Tola means worm. So worm, the son of Pua, the son of Dudu. Pua means splendid. So I can look at you and go, Pua, it's splendid. And better yet, Dudu means beloved. To this day in Israel, they say Dudu. At least, unless they're playing a practical joke on all of us, they've been doing it for many years now. Uh, Dudu means beloved. A man of Issachar, and he dwelt in Shamir. And I want you to just read this carefully with me, and I'll try to bark out a couple questions, see if you can pull them out. Again, after Abimelech, there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dudu, a man of Issachar, who he dwelt in Shamir, in the mountains of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years, and he was buried then in Shamir. Now, what tribe is he from? Issachar. Well done. He's from Issachar. What tribal allotment is he living in? Mm. Ephraim, did you get that? He's in the wrong place. Just a little side note. We'll see why that kind of plays out here in a moment, but interesting, we're going to see two characters in these first five verses. Tola again. What we read is he's a man of Issachar. He dwelt in the mountains of Ephraim, and he judged for 23 years, and then he died. Any other great information about him? Not really. What you get about the guy is, we know who his dad and his grandpa were, and we know that he was in the, a place where he wasn't allotted in his tribe. He was important, by the way, he was living in the mountains of what, again? Ephraim. Don't forget that. Ephraim is what we're looking at, right? A guy that isn't where he belongs or doing what he's not supposed to do or whatever the case you might want to say. Uh, not where he should be. In the mountains of Ephraim. Now, verse 3, we read, And after him rose Yair. Now, we know this guy's name because there's another guy in the New Testament who has a daughter who is very ill, ultimately winds up dying and then being raised. His name is Yerus. Well, that's the same name. It means he enlightens. He is a Gileadite. And he judged Israel 22 years, one year less than the other guy. Now, he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. He also had 30 towns with which they called Havot Yer. Yer is his name again. Havot means villages of, to this day, or towns of Yer, to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Yer died and was buried in, come on! So what's that? Look at He was buried in, come on! Now, where is he from, as far as family? Gilead. Do you see that? He's a Gileadite. That means he's a son of, or a descendant of, Gilead. Where does he live? He lives in Gilead. We read, by the way, 
Uh, notice, by the way, with, with Tola, we look backwards to get his identity. His dad is grandpa. Notice what we get in information about Yair is the other side of it. We get his children. Did you notice that? So we see the past with Tola. We see the future with Yair. Interesting point. These are little things we could just miss. No, and it isn't like I'm just trying to pull out some things and go, look at this. Is, we found stuff, the hidden keys of these two guys. We're going to see that it's going to play into our story that will read much like the narrative that it is. What we do read about him, though, is how many sons did he have? Thirty. This is of the thirty sons. What did they write on? Thirty donkeys. What does that mean? Each son had a donkey. Interesting. And how many towns were there? Thirty. So each son had a town and had a donkey. Whoop-de-doo, right? That changes your life, doesn't it? Well, I'd like you to consider the fact that what this means. What did you what this means? First of all, it's important to write, note that they didn't write 30 white chargers or 30 white horses or white steeds. A king or a prince that rides a white steed or a white charger, does anyone know what that means? It's coming for battle. We'll see that, by the way, with Jesus in the book of Revelation. When you ride a donkey, you come for peace. We see that in the book of Zechariah, foretelling, of course, of Jesus descending the Mount of Olives on a donkey. Notice the information we get. And again, this is the stuff we read past because it's really not a narrative. It's just kind of a bit of information. But what we get is in this second guy, the first guy, remember, Worm, what we get is his dad and his grandpa. And then he was really from a tribe, but he isn't where, where his tribe is supposed to be. Now, in this particular guy, we get his kids who somehow seem to be more of peace, 30 donkeys. And they seem to be, by the way, notice that he's kind of known for fruitfulness, 30 sons. He's known for peace, 30 donkeys. And he's known for progress, 30 cities. That's a lot to say already. And I remind you, where is he at? Gilead. Where is the first guy from? Mountains of Ephraim. So we have the first guy, Worm, is from Ephraim. Second guy, he enlightens, is from Gilead. Did you get that? Of the two guys, which one would you rather prefer to be a friend with? I mean, just from the little information I have here, I kind of go with the second, only because it seems like the guy is fruitful and it seems like the guy is making progress. He's gathering cities. Seems like a really good guy to be around in comparison. Not that the other one was bad. It's just the way that it's listed. Why is that a big deal? Remember, I mind you, he died and he was buried. And come on. And from there, now we get this story of this guy named Yephtha. Yephtha, it is important to recognize as we kind of look at this. Uh, Yephtha, is, is we kind of see this, the, the area of Gilead is allotted to Gad. Yephtha now is going to be listed in the next couple chapters. We are going to see uh, from this that, well, take a, take a look at it with me. Why even, why even just start there? It says this. <clears throat> Verse 6. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Again, did evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Syria and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the people of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. It seems to me that at this point, the only God they weren't serving was the real one. Did you notice that? Now, it's important to note the digression in Numbers chapter, I'm sorry, in Judges chapter 2, verse 11, it says Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals. 
in two verses later, it says they forsook God and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. Let's add that on. By 3.5, it says that they dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And it says, and they served their gods. That means the gods of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. What do they all have in common? They're on the west side of the Jordan. So basically, we went from the Baals to the Baals and the Ashtoreths to all of the gods of the west. Uh, and now what we read is not only did the gods of the west, but we go even farther north to Tyre and Sidon. And then we go east of the, of the river to Moab and Ammon. And even in far west to the area of the Philistines. It's at this point, it seems like everyone's progressing. And here's our first point, even as we start to set the scene. Listen, please hear me in this. We know this, and yet it's, and yet we're guilty of it. The only thing that satisfies is Jesus. The only thing. And we know that in our heads. But we ditch Jesus for stuff and things that are even Jesus-esque in some cases. It's kind of like Jesus. It's kind of Christian. It's whatever. But here's the crazy part. It isn't like we try it and it doesn't satisfy and we say, well, note to self, that doesn't satisfy. Let's go back to Jesus. What we do is we say, Oh, that doesn't satisfy. Maybe I should double the order and see if that works. And so what we do is we go, okay, this little thing didn't work. Let's try it a lot. And it still doesn't satisfy. So then we keep trying it more and we keep trying it more and we keep trying it more. And here's the crazy part. We're insane. We are insane to do this because we know that satisfaction is found at the feet of Jesus. But now here instead, we're training him in for this thing. And instead of just going... I should get back to Jesus where I'm satisfied. We just keep trying harder and harder. It's almost like we are determined to prove that this thing's going to be okay if we just get enough of it. And that could be power. That could be quote-unquote freedom. That could be money. That could be stuff. That could be romance, love, whatever it is. This thing. But we dive into it until we almost become, if you will, we become addicted to it. And we see that here with the false gods. That they just keep going, well, okay, Baal didn't satisfy. Well, let's try Ashtoreth too. Well, okay, that doesn't work either. Well, then let's try the gods then of the people around them. Let's try those gods. Okay, that's not working. Well, let's go farther north. That's not working. Well, let's try some Buddhas. And while we're at it, let's try that blue-faced character with all the arms. Let's try that one. And let's keep rubbing this and let's start worshiping fruit and cantaloupe and all these other things. And then while we're at it, let's, let's now let's try stripping ourselves naked and rolling down hills. And now let's try. And we're trying and we're trying. The funny thing is it's all in the same direction. And there's no part of us that stops and says, note to self, the farther I go, it still doesn't work. Because somewhere in it, it's like we have to eat crow. We have to humble ourselves and say, okay, that was stupid. Let's stop that altogether and go back to just Jesus. So why don't I do that? Why is there something inside of me that's determined to keep going as if somehow, if I just get far enough on the bus line, I'm farther away from Jesus to do it, that somewhere in it, I'll finally go, see, I knew it, this really does work. And I have a feeling I'm not the only one in here that's like this. And I know it because the moment I start, I lose my joy. And then after that, I lose my confidence, and I lose my authority, and I lose my witness. I lose my strength. 
all of these things that God is. And the moment I walk away from it, God's like, let's just see how good it is on your strength, on your wisdom, on your personal confidence. And then somewhere I'm like, well, the world says I need to have self-esteem. God's like, you need to have God esteem. If you esteemed me, you'd feel great about yourself. So the question I'm asking is, to you and to me, am I still trying? Is there something that I know can't satisfy if I really listen to the Lord right now? But I'm trying anyways. I am just determined to do it anyways. Verse 7 says, The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the people of Ammon. Now go back for a moment to verse 6. Notice all the gods they served. What were the last two gods of? Did you notice? The Baals, the Ashraths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, and the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Did you notice that? Who were the last two gods of? Ammon and Philistines. Look at verse 7 again. It says, The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and Ammon. Notice the idea there. Now, this idea of God selling his people, it seems to me that we'll always be a buyer. And the idea of it is, is that's why, do you know what it means to redeem? To redeem means you buy it back. Do you realize what it means for us to be redeemed? means we've, in essence, sold ourselves somewhere else and God had to buy us back. It's the story of Hosea, by the way. He sold, by the way, Israel into the hand of Kishun Rishithim, uh, king of Mesopotamia. We see that, by the way, in 3.8, uh, from which Othniel will be raised up to deliver the people. And then in 4.2, Yabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor. We know, of course, more from the commander of his army, that Sisera, from which Deborah and Barak then wind up delivering the people from there. Now, Gets, it's the idea here is that God now, it's like they've worshipped everything but him. So God's like, well, if that's what you want to do, go run off to that. In verse 8 it says, From that year they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. And all the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan, in the land of the Amorites, in Gilead, notice that Gilead, remember those two judges, the first two? Which one was from Gilead? Do you remember? It was Tola and Ye'er. Which one? Yeah, very well. So it says in Gilead, Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over Jordan to fight against Judah, against Benjamin, and against the house of Ephraim. Now they've crossed the river and gone west. So Israel was severely distressed. Did you notice in this, God's people can be harassed? God's people can be oppressed? But it is at their disobedience. The word for harassed, by the way, is like, oh, rats, it's ra'atz, and it means to shatter. The word for oppress is the word ratzatz, and it means to crush into pieces. I can take a hammer and hit a piece of glass, and it'll shatter with a single piece, with a single strike, if, the, if it's not tempered. But to crush something takes repeated strikes. And get the idea that what happened is, is these people came, and they came down hard. They brought the hammer down. And it wasn't enough. So they continued to bring the hammer down. Jesus told us, by the way, that he is the cornerstone. He says, whoever falls on him will be dashed to pieces. 
expect to fall to pieces. That's how God rebuilds us. But if the stone falls on you, you'll be crushed to powder. Do you hear those terms? I'd rather be broken to pieces than crushed to powder. Well, they harassed them, God's people, for 18 years. Think about where you were 18 years ago. Some of you were almost in nappies, or at least the rumors up until. 18 years ago. But it seems to me, until they crossed the river to the west side, no one's crying out to the Lord. That east side, remember those two and a half tribes that decided they would settle easy? Numbers, by the way, 3225. The children of Gad and of Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh say, Hey, come on now. This is good enough property. I know God's promised the land on the west of the Jordan, but this looks good to us. This is good enough. We've already conquered it. It's good. Let's take it. And Moses calls their card and says, This is because you don't want to fight a war. I tell you what, leave your women and children here. Go fight the war with us. And if we, you know, once we win, then go back and claim the land, and that'll be at least better. So they say, Okay. They leave their women and children, by the way, in Gilead. That sound familiar? That place keeps popping up. And they go. But then they settle on the other side. Listen, there are going to be those who are always going to live outside the fringe. But I warn you, it's the place closest to the enemy, and it's always the first place to be attacked, and it's always the first place to fall. And that's what we see here, by the way. So what happens is they oppress them and then they move across the river and they go to the west side. And at this point, they're attacking the south side. That's Benjamin and Judah, by the way. And they cry out to God. But as they cry out to God, it says in verse 10, the children of Israel cried out to the Lord and said, we've sinned against you. They're talking to the Lord because we've both forsaken our God and served the Baals. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, by the way, now we don't read how. We don't read that the Lord sent a prophet or a script came down from heaven or a judge spoke anything. We just read that God spoke. And, it's, and this is what God said. Didn't I deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites? And notice from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines. Notice, remember, that's the two groups that are oppressing them right now. He goes, didn't I already deliver you from these guys? And he also says that, and, and by the way, before he even goes beyond this, notice he's like, look at I've already delivered you from these people who are now oppressing you. And, and I realize there's a point that I look at here, and the point is there is something inside of me that has this natural desire to run back to my old crutches, to my old battles, to my old lean-tos. And I realize I could walk with the Lord forever, but sooner or later some trial hits, something hits, and I'm tempted to want to go back to some old nasty crutch or habit. What's, how stupid is that? I mean, you finally, you know, it's like, no, no, my case, this wasn't it. But I know people, it's like, you know, you finally taste food. You're finally breathing. You can exercise a little bit without coughing up a lung. But crazy situations hit and you still want a cigarette. How does that happen? And God's like, didn't I already deliver you from these? Didn't I already do that? Didn't I already show these gods were impotent in my presence? Didn't I already show that those things you trusted don't mean anything compared to me? Didn't I already take them down? Verse 12, and also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites, when they oppressed you, you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I'm not going to deliver you anymore. Go and cry out to the gods in which you've chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of distress. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, we've sinned. 
Do whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul can no longer endure the misery of Israel. Whoa, 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 whoa. Stop, stop, stop. Did you get this? Put this in order for a second. Remember how they were serving all those gods? Then they cry out to the Lord and say, God, deliver us. And God says, no way. Why don't you cry out to those other gods you're serving? Then they put away those other gods. I said, wait a minute. So when they were crying out to God, they still had those other gods in their houses? I wonder if they already did cry out to those gods and it didn't work. They went back to those things and it didn't satisfy. It didn't save. It didn't make them safe like they wanted it didn't do those things that they promised they would do. And we knew it. We, that's the part we kick ourselves in. We know this doesn't work. And so look at what's happening. It's like, they're like, God, please deliver me. But these things are still in our house. And God's like, well, why don't you cry to them? They're still in your house. And they're finally like, you're right. And they ditch those gods. And then they cry out to God and go, goes, now I can't take it. Now I see your pain. And I wonder in my own life, those moments when I'm asking God to intervene, but God's like, you're not willing to take any steps at all to get this out of your life. You just want the consequences removed, but you really don't want to see those stupid false gods out of your life. Those altars you've built that really, you know, it's like those altars you let the world build in your life or you've built in your life about romance and about importance and about purpose. Hey, things that I put as an appetite within you, but I'm supposed to meet first. And you're still chasing after these things. And you're going crazy because of it. Because in it, you're so consumed with yourself now that you look and you're like, God, why aren't you protecting me? Why aren't you doing these things? <clears throat> I feel so oppressed. I feel like I'm out of control. My emotions have got the best of me. The world's got the best of me. The circumstances have got the best of me. And God says, well, because you're still leaning on other things, I am not going to be an addition to your buffet line. I am either going to be the whole meal or I'm going to be none of it. Those are my options. Lord of all or not Lord at all. Those are my choices in your life. And I've got to be honest, this is hard for me to hear because I know it's true. But I wish my life reflected this more. Now, God finally, they're like, you know what? You have my permission. Tear down these altars. Get rid of this nonsense. This is stupid stuff. I know it and you know it. I'm going to stop chasing after this thing. If, if somehow that I know if, I, if the dog caught the car. I know if I finally bit into this and I got it. I know it's not, it's not going to satisfy me. And I know I'm acting crazy for chasing it. Forgive me. Can I get back to that place again where it was just me and you? I mean, this, this is no performance here. This is sincere. Because what happens is I dilute myself with stuff and it just... It makes a mockery of my Savior and Lord in my own life. I think, what am I doing? Does this mean anything? Am I relenting? God changed the circumstances? Or am I really repenting and go, God changed me? Notice the people were crying out and they're like, you know, hey, life really sucks right now. It's terrible. You know, look at this. I mean, the Philistines... The Ammonites, they've really made my life miserable. Deal with them. 
when God's like, ah, la, 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 I can't hear you over the sound of your other, your, the, sound, the songs you're singing to your other gods. And finally you're like, God, change me. I realize I'm the problem. Not this stuff. Then, verse 17, the people of Ammon encamped against the Notice, by the way, they gathered together. Notice where they encamped. You tell me, verse 17, where did the enemy camp? Gilead, did you notice that? That place keeps popping up. Remember the second guy? His name, I remind you, means he enlightens. The guy that was known for the future, for his legacy and his progress with the cities. I like that this is the guy that we relate to in this. But the enemy is camped here now. And the children of Israel assembled together at Mizpah, which, by the way, is still in Gilead. Think of it, by the way, as there's Westminster, the stop, and there's Westminster, the borough. Gilead's a place, but within Gilead, the place, there's Gilead, Gilead, the borough, and there's Gilead, the place within it. But within that also was the place of Mizpah. Now, that is really important, because if I go back to Genesis, by the way, I realized, do you remember Jacob and his story, by the way, where Jacob had a couple situations where he was really dealing with some guys that were really rough to deal with. One was his uncle, well, really, if you will, it was his father-in-law. And his name was Whitey Laban. And you remember how he kind of ripped him off, changed his, 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 uh, his income, his, his work wage, and the whole bit. And ultimately, they met together and had this really kind of a showdown meeting. And the meeting was this. I mean, you want to, I mean, the guy was like, he was working for his father-in-law. In some cases, maybe that's great. This was not one of them. And, and then ultimately, he wants up having to take his daughters and fleeing. The daughters, by the way, steal dad's gods. You know, Rachel, the one that's like his favorite wife, it steals his dad's gods. And ultimately, by the way, you kind of get the idea again, these things, these are obviously aren't things that were supposed to come with them. And then finally, Laban catches up with him. He's like, what'd you do? And, you know, like, and he's like, well, look at, I you just wouldn't let me go. So I kind of ran out for my life. And he's like, but you took my daughters. They're like, they're my wives now. He says, but you took my gods. And Jacob, completely ignorant of the situation, he goes, well, look, if you find them, kill the person they're with. Well, it would have been his favorite wife, but she put him underneath her and said it was that time of the month and he wouldn't go near her. Now, ultimately, in this situation, they kind of sit down and have this meeting. And he goes, listen, here's the deal. Let's draw a line. And then, as we draw a line, you can't come on this side of it, and I won't go on that side. Because I don't trust you, you don't trust me. And they call the place Mizpah, and they call it Galid. Because they take a bunch of rocks and put it up, and they call that the mound or hill of witness. Which is the word Galid. Gilead means the hill of witness. Interesting, because there's going to be kind of a meeting like that here as well. But in this particular place of Gilead, by the way, you have these two enemies. But what's interesting is when I was a kid, and that wasn't that long ago, it was like there weren't dinosaurs, and we actually did have televisions. Uh, they, they, had, they used to have these things called Mizpahs that like, kids would give. And it was like, where me and thee are apart from each other, God watch over us. And they you know, kind of cracked in half, and you gave the girl half, and, and you got the other half of it. And it was kind of like, well, while we were apart, God watch us both. But the whole thing was like, God watch you when I can't. I mean, it was kind of a threat. Now it's like romantic. You know, it's like Valentine's Day. Let me give you this. You know, it's kind of like every breath you take, I'll be watching you. You know, it's not really as romantic as it sounds. Nonetheless, they gathered together at Mizpah, the place where that took place. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said then, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the people of Ammon? He will be head over the inhabitants of Gilead. 
Wouldn't it be just terrible if we ended there? You're kind of like, dun, 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 who will it be? Well, we're going to go on. Well, who would I pick in a moment like that? I would pick the biggest, the most undefeatable, the toughest. Wouldn't you? Who's going to lead us in the battle? The one no one can take down. By the way, there was one available that way. His name was, oh yeah, God. That's who it was, the one that they weren't ultimately seeking until they were in their foxhole. But they're looking for a person, and that's a common thing. Who's going to lead us? Chapter 11 leads us into our hero, if you will, strange guy. And with that, by the way, his name means he opens. And we start with his backstory, which is pretty common even if we were doing this as a movie. Now, Yepsa, the Gileadite. Did you notice that again? Where does he live? This should be an easy question. Where does he live? Gilead. I remind you, who's in Gilead at the moment? The enemy army is there. And by the way, as are the people, God's people as well. Gilead was a mighty man of valor. That doesn't mean he was just strong. That means he's supposed to be a man of character. That's the idea of valor. But he was the son of a harlot. And Gilead, from, you can't be more of a Gileadite than someone that was born from Gilead, begot Yephthah. So his dad has, engages a prostitute, and this boy is born from it, named He Opens. Interesting for what it's worth. This is Gilead's wife. Uh-oh, that means that man's married and he employed a prostitute. Gilead's wife bore sons. Now, from the way this is listed, it appears as if the sons are younger than Yephthah. Does that make sense? Because it's our next verse. Bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Yephthah out. They said to him, you shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Oh, no, you didn't. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tov, which means good to this day. And worthless men banded together with Yephthah and went out raiding with him. The word worthless is the word reik, and it means vain or empty. Now, now don't miss this. I remind you, our last guy that we focused on was a guy that declared himself king, who surrounded himself with thugs, if you will, and then declared himself king. And that guy was a jerk from the beginning. This situation is a little different because it tells us that the guy was actually a decent guy in the beginning, and he got booted by his half-brothers, if you will. And as a result of that, now look at I'm not trying to disqualify sin. Sin is still sin. Sometimes as I look at sin, though, I kind of look and I say, what happened to you to make you like this? I mean, there are people I've watched that were so sweet and so kind and so compassionate. And then I look at them and sometimes the stuff that comes out, I'm like, what happened to you that could change you this much? That could harden your heart like this? Now, if we'd have met this guy at this moment, he's a punk. He's a troublemaker. He's gathered with other people of bad company. We know bad company corrupts good morals. Scripture makes that clear. But he's got a bad crew he's around, and they went about raiding. Do you know what it means to raid? That means they were mugging people. As people walked by, they kind of, as a gang, thugged up on him, and they did the old thug life thing. Oh, you're so, you know, not wallet, I like your watch. And the next thing you know, they were taking stuff. But he didn't start out this way. And you know what's the funny thing? Though he'd started out nicer, he's in a rough place. 
He's a Gileadite, and those first two judges told me, look, look for the future. Don't look back. Let's look, let's look, let's look forward. And I think this guy is going to be our hero. He's like Ant-Man. He's like in a bad place, and he's kind of a questionable character at this point, and yet he's going to be the superhero. It came to pass in verse 4 that after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. We're seeing that. By the way, Ammon, for what it's worth, a little bit of backstory, was the result of the incestuous relationship with Lot and one of his daughters, for what it's worth. Um, we see that in Genesis 19.38. We know that the people of Ammon, by the way, were always kind of, were kind of known for being uh, a violent people. Uh, Israel, by the way, defeated uh, the, with the edge of the sword, took possession of the land of Arnon and Yabok. As far as the people of Ammon, it was a border for them in Numbers 21. And God told him in, De- in Deuteronomy 9, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 2, don't mess with them. Don't mess with them at all. Just stay away from their land. But by the way, by chapter 3 of Deuteronomy, he reiterates the fact that up to the border of Ammon was that area of Gilead. If you will, it was just buttering, it was buttering, it was just butting up to their territory. And God says, hey, that's still your territory. So, it came to pass in verse 5, when the people of Ammon made war against Israel, that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tov. Now, I remind you, this guy got booted out of his property by his brothers. They said, and by the way, I don't know where dad was in all of that. You know, I mean, when we start to think about it, I start to think, well, was there anyone else that was kind of booted out by his brothers? And kind of came back to be kind of a hero. As a matter of fact, the story of Joseph really reflects that, if you remember. And he gets more press than anyone. Really, he gets the majority of press, if you look at it, in the book of Genesis. Well, they come. So these elders of where he came from kind of come up and go, we really need you. Verse 6, it says, they came to Jephthah and said, come and be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, don't you hate me? Did you expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That's why we've come, we turn to you now, that you may go with us and fight against us, fight, I'm sorry, fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now, this is, I bet you when Jephthah woke up this morning, he didn't think, chances are the people where I came from are going to come and ask me to be their boss. Because the last time he was there, everyone gathered together and kicked him out, pointed and laughed. Kind of thing. You ever have one of those moments in your life? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a painful thing even to think about. Well, you were just like, you are so not welcome here. You are so not the person. And you think, well, that's a done deal. That doesn't mean God doesn't do something amazing in it. So they came in there like, hey. The question is, how does Yepta feel about the place he came from? I think there's a hint of it in verse 9. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back home and fight against the peop- to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers me, uh, them to me, shall I be your head? Now, you get the idea. He's like, hey, look, if I go back and fight this battle and win, I actually get to be the head of this? But you know the word that really sticks out here? The word home. Did you notice that? He doesn't just say, hey, if you take me back and I win. He says, if you take me back home. You know, sometimes you talk to somebody and they had a really bad circumstance. and like, I don't want anything to do with that. I hate those people. They're horrible and I don't try whatever. But in the end of it all, still something inside of them is still soft when it looks back and goes, you know, we're still home. And I, and I look at this guy and for all the things we would have seen on the outside, I don't think we would have seen this. But I know God did. 
God looked at this guy and he went, you know, he kind of got the raw end of the deal. He didn't pick his mother. There's not anything he could do for that. And now he's really kind of living a lifestyle. And again, I'm not disqualifying his sin. But deep inside, this guy really needs just to go home. Kind of like the prodigal. And these people are like, hey, in the simplest sense, note this. The elders of Gilead come to the bargaining table with Jephthah. They come to bargain. And here's their bargain. If you come, you clearly seem to be the toughest guy around. You're running your gang. He's a gang leader is really what he is. You bring your gang with you, and we recruit your gang to help us fight these guys. And we win. You could be the leader, not just of your gang. You could be the leader of the whole place you came from. Verse 10 says, The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord be a witness between us. Does that sound familiar? Just like Jacob and Laban? The Lord be a witness between us if we do not do according to your work. I remind you, for cross-reference, Genesis 31. That's the story we were talking about with Jacob. Then Jephthah sent with the elders, or, I'm sorry, went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord in Mizpah, important place. Again, that's where the situation took place in Genesis 31. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of Ammon. So he comes back to be their leader, the commander of their army, and the first thing he does is engage the leader of the enemy. And ask them. He seeks, in essence, peace in this situation. And I think that's kind of important. It tells us in Romans 12:18, as much as it depends on you, live peaceable among all men. As much as depends on you. And there's some people that are going to hate you no matter what you do. In which case, just try to live away from them if you can. But he sent messages. He says, what do you have against me that you've come to fight against me in my land? Did you notice that? Can I just say, listen, listen, please hear my heart on this, beloved. We're in a battle in London over the ground we, that we walk on. This belongs to the Lord. How do I know that? Because he says, all the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's still his property. Satan has not snuck in and stolen the title deed. This still belongs to God. But in that, the problem often is that his own people won't take possession. Now, I'm not talking about some weird claiming it situation where we do a ceremony and start grabbing knives. What I'm saying, though, is we don't take any possession of our faith anymore. We just kind of like, you know, if we just lay back, maybe somebody else will fix the problem. And there's nowhere where it's like, it's my God. And this is my church. And this is, you know, this is, this is my God. And and he's got a calling. And this is my calling. And I'm going to take possession of that. Instead, we're just kind of like, well, let's just kind of float. And if we can kind of float long enough, maybe we'll float into heaven. But God's like, look it. If we're going to be really militant in the best points of that, We'd be militant in prayer and go, you know what? You are my God, and I'm going to seek you. This is my prayer. This isn't just a general prayer reading from a book. This is my heart laid before you, God. And this is my place now. Because if we don't do that, you know, it's like, look at, you know what happens? People diss their own place, and then they have no pride in it anymore. Nobody wants to claim it, but they're the ones who dirtied their room, and then it's like, it's not my room. This is my city. There's no other place on earth that I would call more home than this. And I take very seriously when things start happening, where the enemy starts seeking to gain a foothold, because darn it, this is my city, and it belongs to my king. <laughs> and because it belongs to my king, I want to see something change. But if I'm just like, well, just passion do really matter, well, that's another story. Is there any part of you that's taken possession of your faith? 
taking possession of your calling. Are we still living in the ethereal? Well, I'm learning from Yephthah here, the other. Yephthah kind of goes, hey, look at What do you do with me in my place? And I remind you, he's a Gileadite, Gileadite standing in Gilead. Now look at As he asks this question, by the way, the king of Ammon responds in verse 13. And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Yephthah, saying, Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from the Arnon as far as Yabok onto the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore these lands peaceably. Now, here's what he says, because you took my property. Now, I remind you, when God told him, he goes, look it. You could go up to this point, but this is the border of Ammon. Don't go beyond it. Somehow in all of this, the king of Ammon has decided that the, pro- the property lines should be changed. Please hear me. This still happens today. Now, a quick history lesson, but please hear me on this. In 1967, Israel did a preemptive strike after recognizing that they were surrounded on all sides by military weapons pointed directly at them that had been moved within the last couple weeks. Now, in that particular strike, enemies came from every side to attack them. And miraculously, they succeeded. And they gained farther ground. But going back just a little bit before that, The original mandate for what was called Palestine agreed unanimously by the United League of Nations in 1920, listen, designated 124,466 square kilometers. Almost 125,000 square kilometers. That was what the United Nations, or the United League of Nations, if you will, mandated to the Israeli people, ultimately. Two years later... It went from 124,000, reduced to 28,166 square kilometers. Before 1967, the amount of the area that was actually claimed by Israel as a nation was 14,245 square kilometers. After the battle of 1967... Israel now claims a property of 20,770 square kilometers. 20,770 square kilometers. So let me put things into perspective. England. We're not talking about the UK. We're talking England. We're not talking Wales. We're not talking Scotland or Ireland. Just England is 130,395 square kilometers. What does that mean? Put it into perspective. That means that before, before 1967, Israel basically was one-twentieth less than one-twentieth the size of England. That little piece of property. Today, by the way, it's now roughly 15, one-fifteenth the size of England. To be honest, the size of Wales today, big old Wales, is 20,000 761 kilometers, square kilometers. Listen to this number again. 20,761 square kilometers is Wales. What was in, what's uh, Israel today? 20,770 square kilometers. Nine square kilometers different. 
between Wales and Israel today. To give you an idea, that is almost a third of Camden Town. Is just Camden Town, not Camden the Borough, but Camden Town. A third of that is roughly the difference between the size of Wales and the size of Israel today. When people start to, to speak about peace with Israel, they say, we need to go back to the 1967 borders. Give us back the land. And we go, okay, well, now we've talked political. Let's talk personal. It is constantly a move of the enemy to claim land God has already given you as, their, as his own and demand it back. Hey, God, what, you think God's given you freedom from that addiction? You think God's moved you forward with that? You think he's given you power, the spirit of power, love, and a sound mind? I want that ground back. Go back to being a hussy. Go back to being confused. Go back to being a basket case. And the enemy loves to make it sound like that property is his, but it isn't. It never was, and it never will be. Don't give him property that's not his. And that's what this king is saying. Hey, this is property that was mine, which it wasn't. Give it back. You can't give something back that wasn't theirs. How weird is that? So Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of Ammon. And you know what he's going to do here? He's going to give them a proper history lesson. And anytime the enemy tries to do that, quote scripture. Show the enemy, if you have to get any conversation with them, what the Lord has really done. Because by the way, when God does something, he plays for keeps. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon. Verse 15, he said to him, thus says Jephthah, Israel didn't take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. When Israel came out of Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. They sent messengers to the king of Edom. They said, please let me pass through the land. And the king of Edom wouldn't, wouldn't heed. In like manner, we send messengers to the king of Moab, but he wouldn't consent. So we remained in Kadesh. We tried to go through two places. They wouldn't let us. We stayed where we were. We went along the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab. We didn't go through it. We went around, came to the east side of the land of Moab and encamped on the other side of Arnon. But they didn't enter the land of Moab, for the Arnon was on the border of Moab. Israel sent messengers then to Sihon, king of the Amorites. Remember, this is Ammon, not Amor. And it says, the king of Heshbon. Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land into our place. But Sihon also did entrust Israel to pass through his territory. But So Sihon gathered all his people together and camped at Yachaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel. And they defeated him. Thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon to the Yabok, and from the wilderness of Jordan. The Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from, from before his people Israel. Should I, you then possess it? Will you not possess whatever Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord, our Lord, the Lord our God, give, takes possession of before us, well, we'll possess it. Now, this Sihon, what he had done is he had taken the property from Moab, that area that, and then what happened is Sihon attacked Israel, Israel won, so they got their land. That was the land that they're living in. So this guy goes, give me my land. He's like, it was never your land. 
Sihon had it before he attacked us. We won. God gave us the land. Hey, when your God gives you land, don't you take it. My God, listen, 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 listen. When God gives you something, shouldn't you take it? Could you imagine God gives you joy and the enemy says, give that to me, that's mine. God gives you peace and the enemy says, give that to me, that's mine. What do you do? He says, excuse me, it never was yours. I'm certainly not going to give it to you now. Well, that was my land. No, it wasn't. God conquered that land for me. It's mine now. When God gives it to me, shouldn't I take it? There's the idea, beloved. Now, you think you're any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab? We better pick it up here. Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? Hey, look at Moab, by the way, the people who, by the way, this king took over. He took the land from Moab. He goes, Moab didn't fight against us. While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages and Aror and its villages and all the cities among the banks of the Arnon for 300 years, why didn't you recover them within that time? Why, you, why are you trying to come at us now? Therefore, I'm not sinned against you. You've wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of, of Ammon. However, the king of the people of Ammon, well, he didn't heed the words of Jephthah. Would you have thought? So the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mizpah in Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. The Spirit of God's coming on him, and he's going after him now. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, and here's where we see his failure. He said to the Lord, if you indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up. As a burnt offering. Is that a crazy deal you try to make with God? Now, I've got to make this clear, and I won't develop this too much, but it's important to recognize. All of the terms are, in the gender case, masculine. And he's kind of going, look at God. If you are willing to give me victory, the first thing that comes out of my house, what house is his? Do we read, by the way, of this guy having children? Well, we will in a moment. What we've read up to this point is we know, though, that this particular guy, he had brothers and a dad. We do know that much. And I wonder, I mean, the place that would be home, I would imagine, since he was, hasn't lived in Gilead. I'm sorry, he hasn't lived in this home. He's like, if he's going to go home, I would imagine that would be his father's house. And I just kind of wonder if, I, thinking that his brothers were all younger, remember that booted him out? I just wonder if somewhere in it he thought, well, the first thing out of, my, out of that house is probably going to be one of my brothers. Burn him. I don't know. That's a crazy thought. Normally animals are what you, I mean, the only thing that's allowable are an animal to be sacrificed to God is a burnt sacrifice. And I remind you, it is always a male, by the way, that it is completely consumed and the idea of it is total consecration. Regardless of Whatever he's on his mind, which the Bible doesn't make clear, one thing's for sure. The idea is, I'll be totally yours. Now let me ask you, have you ever tried to make that deal with God? Will you say, God, if you do this, then I'll be totally yours. I'll totally give you this thing. Here's the problem. We are trying to approach the bargaining table of God instead of the throne of grace. 
You know, the problem when you try to make a bargain with God is you're never thankful. Because if you say, God, I have a guitar collection, and if you deliver me from this problem, you could have all my guitars. Then you give God all your guitars. Then you're like, well, deal's done. We've paid, I've paid my debt. But if you recognize it's grace and you're like, God, I want to give you everything now regardless because you deserve it. And if you do this, I'm just going to praise you and worship you. See, when you recognize God does this out of his grace, it leads to genuine worship. And that's what we would miss otherwise. If we're busy making deals with God, we will never be thankful. We've just thought, well, I entered into a deal and I'm going to pay it. Unfortunately, that's what Yepta is doing. So, Yepta advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them. And the Lord delivered them into his hands and he defeated them from Aror, which means ruins, as far as Minith, which means distribution, 20 cities. And to Chabel Karemim, which means the plain of vineyards. Um, with a very great slaughter, thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. And don't miss this. All of this leading up to this, the battle's only two verses. Did you notice that? I mean, we have this whole thing leading up to it and the backstory of Yephthah and the people freaking out and all this oppression and all this. They cry out to God. God has to do some house cleaning. But the battle itself was only two verses. Do you know how much time we spend freaking out over something that's so small in the end of it all that God gives two verses to? I always think of it in regards to weddings and marriage. It's like you're going to spend the rest of your life married, but you can spend six or nine months or whatever freaking out over the design of a lace doily. And I don't want to pick on that, but the idea is kind of simple where you really freak out over this. And, and by the way, seldom do things go perfectly, right? And you've got to be ready to laugh about it. And then what happens is you kind of wake up and that you've spent all your time focusing on this one moment and then the whole thing's over and then you're like, what in the world do we do for the rest of our life now? And I think about, hey, look, we have challenges in front of us. There are battles to be fought. And there are moments you're like, I, every time I think about this event, I break into a cold sweat. This thing is in front of me, whatever this thing is. But you know, when we look back at this thing, it's going to be a blip, a verse or two at best. And the crazy part is, we will have damaged ourselves over the amount of freak out that we poured into this little two verses. Give it to God and God says, well, we'll take it down. That would be great if that's how this story ended, but it isn't. Because Yephthah made a deal. Verse 34, when Yephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. She was his only child. Beside her, he had neither son or daughter. Can you imagine? He's like, hey, no matter what comes out of my house, I will kill it and burn it completely. And then his daughter comes out. Now, if I were making such a dumb deal like this with God, I would send one guy not to fight on the battle lines and go, by the way, could you take my wife and daughter and send them out on a holiday so they, or glue them to the chairs inside until I come in so they're not the first thing? What part of you doesn't think that far advanced? Does he think that this battle is that much of a miracle? Or, does, or is there a part of you that you're so busy trying to... And let's face it, when you're making a deal with God, do you ever really think about much beyond it? Like we're in survival mode. So can you imagine he kind of comes back and the greatest victory turns into his greatest defeat? So listen. It came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you brought me very low. You were among those who troubled me, for I've given my word to the Lord and I can't go back. She said, Oh, my father, if you've given your word to the Lord, do according to me all that's gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you on your enemies. 
What an amazing daughter. She's like, Dad, whatever you said, go for it. But, verse 37, she said to her fathers, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months, that I may go and wander in the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. She said, go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her friends, and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And so it was at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man. It became a custom in Israel. And the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughters of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Now, I won't go on to the next chapter, because, but here's the weird thing. You go, so did he do it? Did he really kill his daughter and set her on fire? The text has been debated by people, some because they're like, there's no possible way a guy would do this. Well, one thing's for sure. He would not please God by doing it. That's for sure. But I remind you, the people were worshiping every other god, and that sacrifice was a common sacrifice. So on one argument, there's nothing in the text that says he couldn't have done it. But there is another side to it, if that's the kind of thing where we're not going to sleep tonight, if that's the only way we see this. On the other side of it, Scripture has made clear in Exodus 13 that a person could be redeemed. And for a person to be redeemed, there was a sacrifice made on their behalf. But, if it were a case like this, it seems to me that the only way to go to make clear with all, to be honest and true with the scripture is that she was going to remain single and untouched for the rest of her life, perhaps much like Samuel would be handed over as we see at the beginning of 1 Samuel, where he would just sort of serve at the, at the temple for the, or in the, the tabernacle for the rest of his life. And that could be. The text doesn't entirely make it so that that's out of the question. Like, he's like, all right, but from what you, I can't give you off. As, uh, I mean, and, and, and that is certainly a sacrifice. I mean, to think this guy's going to never have children. He's never going to have grandchildren to hold. He's going to, to the one person, he's going to hand it over and say, this is it, we're done. And that's kind of how that plays out. And that's going to be about all that we get in this. So that could be the case. But let's face it, in neither case is this good. And this was all, and please hear me, unnecessary if we actually were willing to go to his throne of grace. We boldly go to his throne of grace that we would receive the grace we need in our time of need. Now here's my question to you in this. As I look at this, am I trying to make any deal with God to think somehow I have something God wants? That if I could give it to God, certainly he'd be okay. And he would certainly say yes. If I have to sweeten the deal, I'm dealing with the wrong God. My God, the only thing he wants is me. But I could say, God, if you do this, you totally have my consecration. I'm going to be completely yours. And I could see God saying, you should be completely mine before this situation. Because what happens if we're not completely his and he acts? You know what happens? We're not completely his on the other side because it's the situation that brought us to offer ourselves. So here's my prayer tonight. That tonight we would just be willing to say, God, could you have me? Have all of me. Have me consecrated in total sacrifice. You know why? Because you deserve it. 
And whatever you give me is going to be best because you are my father. And because you are my father who didn't spare his only son. I know that you mean what you say and you keep your word. I'm left with a weird feeling at the end of this because of these verses. But I remind you, Judges 17, 6, 21, 25 says there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Oddly enough, he may think that was a great valorous act if he did follow through the way we might assume he might have. But God would never be pleased. And God is not pleased by what we think is a great sacrifice for God, for some deal we've made with him. What God would rather is we hand ourselves over completely and then let him use us. The fact he has victory was not because Yephthah gave God a good offer. It was because God is good. Tonight, can we stop trying to make deals with God and actually rest in his grace, but in that then make ourselves available? Because if we did that, we would see a lot more victory. This is the one who didn't spare his only son, sent him on a cross to die for our sins, and then raise again on the third day. Do you realize what God is doing? God is offering us a brand new life and we will never earn it. But he does it because he loves us. Not because we're so lovable, but because he is love. And because I can't earn it, I can't unearn it. Because I can't win it, I can't lose it. I can either enjoy it or run from it. What choice do we make tonight? Will you pray with me? Lord, in our story, we're left with this really weird feeling because of a guy that tried to make a deal with you. And in the end of it all, one way or another, it was at the expense of an innocent girl. The only child he had. And yet, Lord, I recognize that the truest act of grace was for you to offer your only begotten son when I was your enemy. And it wasn't like, if you do this, then I, you know, if I do this, then you can do this. You did it because you love us. And now you just want us to receive. But I also recognize throughout this story, Israel has found themselves oppressed. And they've turned to the other gods and gotten nowhere. They've turned to experts. They've turned to ways to improve themselves. But truth be told, the core of the problem is they're not right with you. And they've filled their heart with idols and things that are in competition with you. And as much as we don't like to confront that, we're, we're, we could be like that. We could be in that place where we're just like, God, I really want you to take away my pain and my suffering and my anxiety and my stress my sadness, my grief. It's like we want you to be the big rubbish collector, but not our Lord. And we know that you really are big enough. You're big enough to remove all of the oppression. You're big enough to take care of all of the challenges. But you're also loving enough to want to do more. I recognize that tonight, Lord. I recognize tonight you want a clean house. So for any person or people that you've put in the way of our walk with you, 
change that. For any old thing that we're trying to lean on, instead of leaning on you or falling into you, change that. For whatever land you've given us, but the enemy has been barking and saying somehow it's rightly his, and we've somehow agreed with him or surrendered to that concept, change us. Not because what we want is just back our peace or our joy or our kindness or our compassion or our hope. But for your name. And Jesus, I know you paid for it all on the cross. I know you died because you'd rather die than live without us. And when you died on that cross, you paid my price in full. And when you rose again from the grave... You offer me a new life. And in that new life is a whole new world. And I want to take possession of it and call it mine. I want you to be my Lord and my God. Not just Lord and God. So here in this room right now, change us. May we walk out of here changed. In Jesus' name. Amen.